Awesome. Thank you, Pastor David. Good morning, everybody. How are we feeling? We're good. I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it through a regular service and I'm not going to cry. And then Laura got up and then I started crying. Thanks, Laura. I was nearly there this morning. Awesome. Well, this morning... I'm preaching to you part two of Live Content. Her pastor David did an amazing job last week with it. And I just don't want to supplant what he did last week, but just build upon the foundation that he laid so very well last week. And um, we're going to be in Philippians 4. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there or find it there in your phone. But don't go on social medias because it's going to be good today. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We're aware of your presence. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're here with us. Thank you that you've been glorifying Jesus already. Jesus, we recognize you. You're the Savior of our souls. We love you so much. You've done so much for us. And today I pray that as we come around your word and as we look at the words of life this morning that you have to give to us, that Holy Spirit, you'll just direct it to every heart and every mind as they need it. Lord, you know what's going on for them. You know what they need this morning, so I pray that you be gracious and feed us from your word in the way that we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I wonder if I was to ask you the question, what do you need to be content, what your answer would be? Don't shout it out, but just have a think in your head. Uh, What would you need to be content? And when this question was asked to lots of different people um, on the street, they came up with, obviously, lots of different answers, but they centered around a few ideas of health, and which is obviously good if you've got your health, that's awesome. Um, Having a bit more money, everybody thought that would be a good idea to be a little bit more content, to have a job that fulfilled them, to have a relationship in which they felt valued, and to kind of feel good in themselves. And if I could kind of snap my fingers this morning and give you all of those things, and um, magically they would come into your life, then our contentment would go up. Nobody here is going to say, no, I don't want any more money or health or nice people in my life, and I I don't want to feel any more fulfilled in my life. Please take that away from me. What a terrible burden you're giving me. None of us would say that. Our contentment would go up. But then what happens is, because we're human, and um, I would spend all of my money on Krispy Kreme donuts and things like that, my contentment would then go down because I would feel very sick after eating all of that sugar. And we'd, you know, some of us would fritter our money away, some of us would invest it, some of us would then be um, upset because the other people have got more money than us. And our contentment would then wane because if it's circumstantial, it can go up and down. We'd end up with a new set of problems. If we turn to what would be the wisdom literature of today, which is the mindfulness bloggers and the people who, uh, they write lots of blogs on the internet and they're kind of prolific on Instagram about how to live your life really well, Um, our Zen bloggers and all those people, they take a step towards the truth of contentment because they recognize that contentment is not an outward circumstance that you can manufacture but it's an inward thing but the problem with the step that they take towards truth is it's not the whole truth they have just a part of the truth which actually makes it very dangerous because a half truth is kind of like a whole lie it's almost there but it's it twists kind of the truth of what God says and so they're right in saying that contentment is not about stuff but then what they do is they focus it all inwards and they they focus on self and so it becomes about you and the idol of you and your happiness and so they're um, touting things like gratitude mindfulness self-improvement 
altruism as a drug. So when you do something really nice for somebody else and you have that nice little, oh, I'm such a good person, that, that kind of feeling, they recognize that positive thinking. And all of those things aren't bad in and of themselves. They're good things. But when it's just directed as this is what I need to do to be my best self and live my truth and that's how I'm going to be content, you turned yourself into the, the idol. You've made, you've, you've made it an inward thing where it's all about you. And they have this phrase that I've read so much this last week as I've been looking at what they have to say. And they say this, contentment is not a one-size-fits-all thing which it wouldn't be if it's to do with you and your personal happiness and your mind and how things are in your life. They would think that contentment is not a one-size-fits-all, that it's different for every single person. But I want to ask the question this morning, what does the Bible say about being content? What is a biblical worldview of how to live content in your life? Because the Bible has stuff to say about this. And so when the world's got you know, two very different opinions of how we kind of come into contentment. It's really important that we look at actually what does Jesus say? What does the Bible say? If I'm going to think biblically, if I'm going to allow the Word of God to renew my mind and for me to live a life that the Bible wants me to, what does contentment mean? How does it think about it and how should I think about it? And we're going to read today Philippians 4 and Ordinarily, when we come to something like this, I just take the little bit of the chunk of scripture that we're going to focus on today. But I actually really felt to read the whole chapter because it's really easy with this little portion of scripture that if you take it out of context, it sounds like we should write it on a tea towel or in a mug, which is lovely. I'm probably somebody, at least one person in this room, will have what we're going to talk about on a fridge magnet or a mug or a tea towel, and it'll look beautiful. But I think sometimes when we pluck a scripture out of its context, it's not that it becomes less powerful because it's meaningful to us and that's beautiful and Jesus uses it to speak to us. But when we see it in its original context, it's so beautiful. It's so powerful. It's so dynamic and life-giving. And so I wanted to take a scripture that you've probably heard so much and put it in its context and then hopefully they just become a bit more alive to you this morning. So... We're going to read in Philippians 4, just a bit of the wider context of the book, if you're not familiar with Philippians or you've not been reading it recently. Um, Paul is writing it. He's the author of the letter. It's a letter, so he's writing it to a group of people, and he's writing it from prison. So prison is not like prison we have now, where, you know, it's warm and dry, and there are prison guards, and, you know, they take you out to do different things, and you can kind of go to a library, and all that kind of stuff. Prison, back when Paul was writing, it was literally a hole in the ground, like a dark, dirty, damp hole in the ground, and if nobody was supporting you, if nobody sent money to you whilst you were in prison for food, then you just starved and died in prison, which is not a great scenario. So to be in prison was bad enough, but then if you weren't wealthy enough or you didn't have good connections, because the state wouldn't give you any food or any medicine or anything like that. So Paul's writing from prison, and it's amazing really to me that he writes Philippians from prison, because the book is all about joy. If you need more joy in your life, Philippians is the book to read. It's about joy and Jesus, and, and he's quite encouraging of this church that he's writing to. Often when I read Paul, he seems quite cranky to me because I don't like conflict. And Paul was 
it seems quite comfortable with conflict. And so when I'm reading Paul's letters, often I'm like, oh, that's really awkward. And he tells them off and he's like, oh, and he, he gets a bit aggro. There's none of that in Philippians. It's like he's writing to an old friend, and you'll hear some of that in the chapter we're going to read. He's just got this sense of he really likes these people. Not that he hates you know, the Corinthians and different people, but he has to kind of be a bit harsh with them, whereas the Philippians, he's really kind of kind to them. There's a genuine affection there. So we're going to read chapter 4, and then we're going to pull out two words that are important for us and two scenarios that I think will just help us as we look at how we live content for the rest of 2021. Does that sound okay? Awesome. All right. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. It'll be on the screen behind me. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So that's that kind of sense that he's not telling these people off. He, he genuinely likes these people and he's, he's, he's got a soft spot for them. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So somebody's been having a squabble and he's saying, sort it out, girls. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everybody. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, because he's finishing off his letter, so he's kind of doing his kind of signing off here. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Because the Philippian church sent Paul some money for while he was in prison. So he's saying thanks for that, guys. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity not that I'm speaking of being in need. So he's, you know, when you go out for coffee with somebody and then you go to pay and you say, oh, I'll get it. And the other person's like, no, 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 no I'll get it. And you go, no, 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 I'll get it. And, say, and they have this little fight at the tail while the person's waiting there going, just somebody pay for it. This is kind of like what's happening there. Paul's, he's saying, you know, oh, thanks, guys. You kind of gave me some money, but, you know, and he's saying that, but he's like, but I don't want you to think that I'm asking for any more money. He's just kind of trying to hedge his bets and say, I don't need any more money, guys. So he says, not, not that I'm speaking of being need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So he's saying, thanks, guys. And you Philippians know yourself that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Not even in Thessalonica, uh, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, it's all right guys, I'll pay, but I seek the fruit that increases your credit. So he's saying, thanks guys for giving me all, uh, like this money to look after me and help me on my missionary journeys. And and it's interesting that he receives it from the Philippians because usually 
in the other letters, people have tried to send him money and he said, no, I don't want it. I'd rather make tents. I want to support my own ministry. But with the Philippian church, which is actually a poorer church, he receives the gift from them and, and he lets us know why he's done that. He's done that so that they can receive their reward. So he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So in them giving out of what we would perceive as lack, they get the reward. And Paul says, I'm going to receive this gift, which I kind of wouldn't normally do. But because it's been a sacrificial gift out of the little bit that you've got, actually, that's going to go to your credit. It's going to, it's going to be fruit for you, which is why he receives it. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So he's letting them know, listen guys, you may have been giving to me, but actually your sacrifice was for God. Your giving was for God. And if you struggle around giving and finances, that's just a great verse to chew on. That when you're giving, yes, you're giving to something, but really it's, it's God that you're giving to. It's him that recognizes the sacrifice. And then he says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So he's letting them know, guys, you've sacrificed, but God never leaves you wanting when you sacrifice for the kingdom. He always sorts you out. You can't outgive God. You, it's fun to try, but you can't do it. So that's what he's saying there. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. There are brothers who are with me. Greet you. All the saints greet you. Everyone's greeting everybody, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And the bit we're going to focus on that you probably already guessed is verses 11 to 13. It says this, not that I'm speaking of being need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There are two words that I want to pull out of these. The first is obviously the word content. And this word content, when we look at it in its the original language, is made up of two words. The first word, which means self, and the second word, which means sufficient. And it's the only time in the Bible that this word is used. Elsewhere in the Bible, the word content is used, but Paul uses this unique word. And I found that really interesting that it was just in this place. And I found it really interesting that Paul was talking about being self-sufficient. Because that sounds to me like a mindfulness Zen blogger. That, you know, Paul's like, oh, guys, you know, if you want to be content, be self-sufficient. You know, just, just rely on yourself and that'll be awesome. So I'm like, well, that can't be true. That makes absolutely no sense in the context of what Paul's talking about. But he's not talking about a self-sufficiency on your, on your own abilities, on the reserves that you have within your life, in your strength, in your knowledge, in what you have. He's talking about an inward adequacy coming from the indwelling power of Jesus Christ. He's talking about living in the fullness of Jesus. And we know that because of verse 13, where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ through him who strengthens me. And so when Paul's saying, I've learned how to be content, I've learned how to be self-sufficient, he's not saying, oh, I'm so good, guys. He's saying, Jesus has strengthened me in every situation. It's him. He's the inward sufficiency that I have discovered in every circumstance. And I, and I find it interesting that 
this verse 13, this I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We, we all know that verse if we've been around church any length of time. And we kind of tend to use it um, a little bit like a pep talk verse. So if you're, you know, if you're going into an interview or into a situation where you're feeling a little bit nervous or you're facing a circumstance and you're like, I don't know if I can finish this last donut. It's a real struggle. And then your friend goes to you, Julie, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And you're like, yes, I can. Nom, nom, nom. Off you go. It's, it's that sort of, you know, you're about to run out onto the field you know, to, you know, smash the other team in whatever chosen sport you have. And then you're like, whoa, what can we do? We're going to do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And then like, whoa, and off you go. And you, you know, I don't know what that is. Rugby, AFL, I don't know. They're doing something. And it's, it's this sort of kind of pep talk verse that we, that we use. And it's, it's right to use it in that, in that way because it is talking about that. But I find it interesting that Paul uses it in this context of contentment. Because we don't often think about it in contentment. We think about it in an overcoming sense. We think about it in an, I'm just going to kind of push through and I'm going to make this happen. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But Paul sits it in the context of contentment. That whatever the situation looks like, whether the situation is good, whether the situation is bad, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which changes it for me. It makes it for me more rich and powerful because I'm like, any circumstance I find myself in, the answer is Jesus. The contentment bloggers, the mindfulness bloggers, they had it wrong when they said contentment is not a one-size-fits-all. Paul says it's absolutely a one-size-fits-all. The one size that fits all is Jesus. So what he says, I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. The answer for Paul is Jesus. It's a little bit like when you're in Sunday school or kids' church and you're like, you're not, you know, you're not, the teacher's asking a question and you're not quite sure. So you just stick up your hand and go, Jesus, because there's, you know, an over 50% chance that that's going to be correct. This is that scenario. How to be content. Jesus, you've got the end of the, the test. You are completely correct. Yes, it was Jesus. He's the one who strengthens us through the good and the bad circumstances. Now, you might think, well, Julie, we've got to the punchline of this preach a little bit early here because you've just told me the answer. The answer is Jesus. And I would be like, yes, we have, we have hit the punchline of the message. If you want the short version, how to live content, Jesus. He is the answer. That's, that's the answer that Paul gives to us. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you through the good and the bad, the highs and the lows. The answer is Jesus. I find it interesting a little bit later when Paul uses this word secret because it intrigues me when he says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. And I love that because that just intrigues me. It's like when someone's like, you know, seven keys to financial success. Well, I'm, I just take every clickbait for things like that. You know, five ways to power through your laundry. I will click on that every day of the week. You know, 29 ways to get rid of dust bunnies in your home. I will always click on things that are, you know, some sort of the secret knowledge that somebody has and, and they found it out and so I want to know it. And all of us have that within us that if somebody's found a secret to something, we're like, oh, I want to know that secret. Maybe it's just me, I'm a little bit nosy. Maybe you don't have that problem. You're like, oh, good, good for your seven keys. I've got eight keys, whatever. But for me, that word secret intrigues me. 
And it's the word mueo, and again, it's this only place this word is used in the New Testament. So when Paul's talking about contentment, he uses two words that he only uses in this context, never anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's this sense of being initiated into the mysteries of, which I love. It's this sense of I've been so disciplined by experience that whatsoever my lot may be, I can endure it. To every condition and to all the several circumstances of my life, I have become accustomed. And Paul uses this sense of, it's not like just a whispered secret that somebody's told you. He says, no, I've been initiated. And, and when we think about what is the secret to contentment, if I was to have that as a nice you know, line for this sermon, what's the secret to being contentment? Paul would say, Jesus and life, just life. Just living. The secret of contentment is having Jesus in the good and the bad of life. Just you living your life with the circumstances that you come across, the ups and the downs that just inevitably come across your life is the secret to how you learn to be content because the ups and the downs come. You know that. You're nobody at the start of this year was like, Lord, I pray for good circumstances and bad circumstances. Just send a mixed bag my way this year, please. Because we know that the good and the bad come and the mundane. That's just part of how life is. Learning the secret looks like just going through lots of lots of different circumstances and finding in the middle of it that Jesus is the same. He's the same. He doesn't change. When the good circumstances come along, Jesus is still good. He is amazing. He does not change. When the mediocre and the boring circumstances come along, Jesus is the same. He does not change. When the most desperate of circumstances come along, Paul says, Jesus is the same. He does not change. I can do all things. I can do the good and the bad, the highs and the lows, the difficult and the easy, the rough and the smooth, the hard and the soft. It doesn't matter what comes my way. I've been initiated into this secret of learning contentment through just living my life and recognizing that Jesus was the strength through it all. He's the strength through it all. He doesn't change. And I want to come to these two observations that will hopefully help you put some legs on this and how this can look like for you in your life, even though you're all more than 50% there because you're a human and you love Jesus and you've had circumstances. So you're already doing this. You're already being initiated into the secret of contentment. But the first observation that I had was this. Paul has lived this out practically in front of this church. So we know that Paul's writing this from prison. And so anybody who writes to me and tells me, I've learned the secret. I, I know how to be brought high and I know how to be brought low. And they're writing that from a prison. Well, I'm fairly going to trust what they have to say about contentment because they're already showing me that in the middle of that, they're able to write such a joyous letter about Jesus and how amazing he is in a prison. And not a nice prison, in a dark, damp hole in the ground, probably with rats and crawlies that I would hate. I, I'd just die. I'd be like, Lord, I can't cope. Take me now. Like, let's just go. Like, yeah, that would not be me. I would, that's not the letter I would have written. I wouldn't have written about joy. But he's writing this from prison. 
And I, I found it interesting when we think about Philippians, if we go back into Acts, we hear about Paul's first experiences in the town of Philippi. Now, Philippi was a, a town that's probably about 11,000-ish so people. It's, it was a retirement town. So when um, it was Julius Caesar that was stabbed in the back, wasn't it? Is that right? Yes, yes, good. And I wasn't paying much attention in that history class. But after that really big significant event happened, the two sides had a really big fight. So kind of Brutus and all his lot, and then uh, I think it's Mark Antony and other people, they, they had this massive fight because obviously it was a real big deal that happened. And then the people who won, which was the Mark Antonys, all of those veterans who fought in that war got settled into Philippi. So Philippi is like a retirement town full of ex-generals and lots of different people. And so it's, it's a fairly military town, but it has different people that are there because of the trade route that it was on. And so it's, it's like big, but not super big, if that makes sense. But it definitely has a prison. And Paul goes there. And there's these three different accounts of what happens in Philippi. The first is, is that he meets a lady called Lydia who's a merchant in purple cloth. So she's this very, very successful businesswoman, highly influential, highly financially successful. And he meets her and they have this conversation and then she gets really insistent. She gets saved and she's like, you've got to come to my house. So she's got this gift of hospitality because Paul's like, no, 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 me and my friends, we've got to go. And she's like, no, you are coming to my house. Like you're coming, I've got the food on, like you're definitely coming. And so her whole household gets saved. So Lydia is there. So that's a massive ministry win for Paul. Huge ministry win. You've just, somebody's gotten saved who has influence within the town, who is well-connected, who is, you know, got good money behind them. She's obviously got this great gift of hospitality. That was a massive um, feature in the early church was hospitality. So Paul's got to be thinking, great, I've got a key person on my team for Philippi, Lydia. Good score. And then, so then other things happen, and then they're going around preaching Jesus, and this slave girl comes after them who's inhabited by a demon, and she's just shouting at them, and it's getting a bit distracting for Paul. And he's like, ah, oh, I can't be dealing with this. And so he casts the demon out of her, which obviously the slave girl's really pleased about because she's free. The owner of the slave girl, not so much because he's lost his sideshow income from her. And so then because of that, this persecution comes upon Paul and the people that he's with, and they get thrown into prison in Philippi. So they're in the Philippian prison, and it's in there, in the dark, damp hole of the Philippian prison, that at midnight, him and Paul and Silas are, you know, singing their songs and having a worship service, and Silas is on the keys, and they're singing, you know, you reign above it all, you reign above it all, it's awesome. And then at midnight, the earthquake happens, and then... Um, the jailer freaks out because he thinks that everyone is going to escape, which would mean that he would have to die. So he's just losing his mind. Paul says, guys, it's all right. Like we're all still here. And he leads the jailer and the jailer's entire household to Jesus. That's in Philippi. So, you know, we've had big ministry high with Lydia. We've had another big ministry high with this demonic possession being cast out. Then ministry low. We're in a prison. It's not good. We're being persecuted. That's we can all agree that's not a great day, you know, if we get, if Pastor David got, not that it was to happen, we don't speak it out. But if that happened, we were like, this is a bad day, like, this is not good in prison. And then, you know, oh, great, we have a worship service and, and like the prison and like the jailer and his family get saved. Good ministry, high, And that's how the Philippian church is born. 
It's born on ups and downs. It's born on them physically seeing Paul in ups and downs and Jesus remaining the same. So I want you to think about what that does for the soul of a church. Because it's highly likely that Lydia and her family and the slave girl and the jailer and his family are all listening to this letter. As this letter is being read out to them, because as Paul writes a letter, the church gathers around and they listen to the letter being spoken to them. And the people who have seen this firsthand in real life hear Paul say, not that I am speaking of being in need, but I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And I'm fairly guessing they would think, yeah, actually we've seen that. We've seen you do that. We've seen you be content when Lydia gets saved. We've seen you have a worship service in a prison. We've seen you be content when you've been persecuted. We have seen this. For I know how to be brought low in a Philippian jail, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. It's highly likely that nobody was supporting Paul and Silas in that prison because they didn't really know him all that much. He knows how to do that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul lived this out practically in front of the Philippian church. When he's saying this, they're thinking of real life scenarios that they have physically seen Paul do. They've been beaten in prison. They've had worship services, major highs, major lows, lots of in-betweens. And that's at the core on the birth of the Philippian church. And I want you to think about in your life, who have you seen do this? Because there will be people. Who have you seen do the highs and the lows of life? And yet there's been a consistency to them where they could say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Who have you seen? Who in your life have you watched do this? Because there will be people. You're thinking about them right now. I think about Pastor Nina. When I look at Pastor Nina, I, I see this. I see her in the highs of ministry life. I see her as she goes home and she looks after her mum with a degenerative disease. And yet for her, the situation is up and down. But Pastor Nina's not like schizophrenic. She's not one minute like, oh, life's so amazing. And then she comes back from Adelaide. She's like, oh, life is so terrible. There's a consistency to her life. And the reason why that is, is because she can do all things through Christ who strengthens her. That's what's happening there. I think about this lady in my mum's church at home. She was a, a mum with um, three girls, and she had breast cancer four different times. Four times. And four times the church came together and prayed, and it was just this desperate circumstance. And yet I watched her, and every time it came back, there wasn't like this, as I think I would have done, I would have been like, oh my goodness, like what is going on? And of course there would have been emotions, but there was a consistency to her life where she wasn't like, Jesus is good when it's going away. I hate Jesus now that it's back. Jesus is good. He likes me now because it's gone away. Oh no, Jesus hates me now because it's come back. There was a consistency to her life, a consistency. I think you've got an awesome example of this in Pastor David. 
when I look at him and how he lives his life, he teaches me this, that in the highest and the lowest of life, that Jesus is the consistency. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. There's a consistency there that in the highs and the lows, in the rough and the smooth, in the difficult and the easy, that the constant one, the anchor for our soul is Jesus. He's the one. He's the one that stays the same. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. I think it's interesting that they saw this modeled. So I want you to think about who in my life have I seen do this? And go tell them. Send them a text message. Because often we don't really realize that, that we're doing this. And then I want you to think about who can I model this to? Who can I model this to? Because if it's been modeled to you and Jesus is the consistency in your life, you can model this to somebody else. You can show somebody else that in the highs and the lows of the life, we don't have to be buffeted by the waves. We don't have to go up and down and be panicked every time something really difficult happens. Or then, you know, oh, wow, it's amazing. Every time something great happens, there can be a consistency in life. And I think how this has looked for me sometimes is when I, when I was in school, when I was a school teacher, I started a new school. And in the first week, um, somebody came into my classroom and they were like, oh, you, um, you'll never guess what. And I was like, what? Because I'm a little bit nosy. And um, he said, oh, this teacher um, is really upset with you. And I was like, well, that's really awkward because I've been here like four days. <laughs> I think I'm a fairly nice person. I don't really, I brought cake and everything. I'm like, I don't really know what I've done. And she, she was upset because I'd been given a, a, a teaching assistant and it was a really good teaching assistant, and so she wanted the really amazing teaching assistant, and she thought that I'd pull some strings and different things because teaching assistants are just gold in a in a in a school environment. So when you get a good one, you just hang on to them for dear life. And so she was really offended that I'd been given this teaching assistant. And so this other lady was saying she's really offended with you. She's really upset with you. And I said, Can I just stop you there? Uh, you know, I'm new here. I don't really know much of how things work, but if this person's really upset with me, I'd really like that person to come and talk to me about it. If it's all the same to you, um, I'm not going to respond to you. If they have a problem, which it sounds like they do, I totally understand that, but I'm going to get them to come and have a talk to me. And she went, oh. And didn't really know what to do with that because schools are quite gossipy environments. So she was expecting me to get all offended and go back. And then there was a whole thing that was going to happen. She was going to go back and then it was going to be this back and forth. And I was just like, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not just not doing that. And she was like, oh. And didn't know. I was like, would you like some cake? And then she just walked off and that was that. <laughs> That's my solution for most things, just offer cake. And what that meant was is that... Um, I was totally out of the gossip loop in the school. So I was the last to know everything. Like often in the assembly, as somebody was leaving, I was like, oh, this person's leaving. Because I just wasn't in the loop of gossip. I just did, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know lots of the office dynamics because I just I put that boundary in really early. But then what that meant was is that they knew that they could come to my classroom and they could come and talk and that it was never going to go anywhere else. Just and I'd never said that, but because of that first interaction, the word just got around because it's a gossipy school. And so then what happened was is that people would just come into my classroom and be like, oh, I've had a really bad day and this has happened and that's happened. And it became like the unofficial counselling like space for the staff because I always had cake and I had tea and I had a listening ear. And so we got very fat together listening to each other's problems. It was awesome. But it was just... 
they, they came and they kept coming. And what they would often say is, why does nothing ever bother you? Why does it, why, you know, when the head teacher would do something ridiculous and everyone would be just up in arms about something or the government would say you have to totally change how you're doing things and elder teachers would just be like their hair would set on fire. They'd be like, why, 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 why are you not bothered about this? Why, uh, why? They couldn't get it. But it was a consistency. It was a through the good, through the bad. There was a consistency, and I was able to share Jesus a lot with them. When they saw me walk through situations that were difficult and situations that were good, and they saw that there was a similarity, there was a a consistency. And that wasn't me, that was Jesus. That was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I want you to think about this week, who can you model this to? Youth leaders, is it your youth kids? Is it the people in your life group? Is it the people in your uni or in your workplace that, you know, as things happen in workplaces and things are up and down and people hate the boss and like the boss and all the different things that go on with the dynamics, the people in your family, that as this family situations go up and they go down, can there be a consistency to your life where you're just like, I can do all things, I can do the good and I can do the bad. And for some of us, we're pretty good at doing the bad. We, when the bad comes, we know we go to Jesus so we can do that. But for you, the challenge is going to be when it's going good, when it's going well, that you can enjoy the season of growth and the season of it going well without feeling like the other shoe's going to drop, without that feeling of if, if this just keeps going really well, something bad is sure to happen because it can't be this good. And for some of you, that will be the challenge, that you, you can stay that consistency, that in the good and the bad, that Jesus is the consistency of your soul. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Redcliffe Youth Leaders, Jesus is not more pleased with you now, with 87, than he was when there were five. He's the same. He's consistent. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And if you found yourself somehow thinking that when things are going bad, God's mad with you and then when things are going good God is glad with you then there's something going on there and what that is is the second thing that I want to observe in this passage which is it's not the external atmosphere that dictates your contentment it's the internal atmosphere of your heart now we might say well Julie we just you just said it was just Jesus and it is Jesus is the answer he absolutely is the answer on this he is the one that can help you do all things through his strength but I had this great example, which I'm not sure if Pastor David shared this last week, but that Satan was in heaven, in the perfect atmosphere, in the optimal atmosphere. Though, can we agree there was nothing wrong in heaven? He was in the most beautiful atmosphere that you could possibly think of. And yet somehow in that atmosphere, he grew discontentment in his heart. He grew a sense that, actually, this isn't enough for me. I'm discontent with my role. I don't want just to be the worship leader. I don't want just what I have. I want something more in an atmosphere where there there is nothing more. It's Jesus. You're in the presence of heaven and Jesus and God himself. How can there be anything more? And so it cannot be contentment and external atmosphere. It's dictated by the internal atmosphere of your heart. And so often we think about contentment that, you know, if the external circumstances of home and family and uni and school and church and work and life and kids, if that was all okay, then it would be inside. But it's not. It's the internal heart 
atmosphere. You'll know this first, Proverbs 4.23, guard or tend is the version that I like, your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the issues of life. And I like that language of tending because it makes me think of gardening, which is messy, it's pruning, cultivating, hacking back, burning, digging up, weeding out, tending. That's what looking after your heart looks like. And if you found yourself in a circumstance and the internal atmosphere of your heart is saying that because the circumstance is bad, Jesus must be upset with you or he's abandoned you or he's displeased with you or he's not as pleased with you as he could be, then there's something going on in the internal atmosphere of your heart. There's some sort of um, offense or accusation or disappointment going on in your heart there and you need to tend that, you need to get that out because even in your heart, even if you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, if in your heart you don't believe that because you're disappointed with Jesus because you feel like he let you down or you're offended with him because you prayed for something and it didn't happen or you're upset with him and you're mistrusting of him because of something that's happened, then it's going to be really difficult for Jesus to be your strength and be your consistency because the internal atmosphere of your heart won't allow it. And that instruction in Proverbs is guard your heart. Does Jesus doesn't say, I will guard your heart. It's an instruction for us. We have to. Jesus can't actually do that for you. He cannot guard your heart for you. You have to tend it because that's what keeps you soft towards Jesus. And when we haven't tended our internal heart atmosphere, it makes it hard to let Jesus strengthen us when we don't trust him. When there's a sense of, yeah, but you didn't come through. Or, yeah, but I know this feels really good and everything's going my way, but I'm just waiting for something to go wrong because it always does. That sense of distrust, mistrust, accusation, disappointment. Like I said earlier, if somehow in your thinking, when things are going well, God is pleased with you and when things are going bad, you've done something to annoy or disappoint or let down God. There's something going on in your heart that you need to tend to. I wonder if the band could come back up. We have to overcome that. We have to tend our heart. I want you to close your eyes and I'm just going to finish by just reading that scripture back over you this morning. I want you just to meditate on those words. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I wonder if you'd say that with me this morning. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Let's say it again. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength.